Welcome to Grace. Won't you stand this morning? You know, we know that no problem is beyond the scope of God's sovereign care for us, His children. In Philippians 4 and 19, He promised to take care of us. In Jeremiah 29 and 11, He says He makes good plans for us. And in Romans 8, 37 through 39, He says He loves us beyond measure. Aren't you thankful today that He cares enough about us to reassure us that He gives us victory in His name? Let's worship Him together today.
2021 quizzing season has come to an end. I'll give them a second to get all of their hardware. <laughs> We've had quite the year, and uh, I couldn't be more proud of these quizzers. Uh, yes, they have done well, working, uh, racking up hardware with trophies and ribbons and medals to prove it, and we'll get to that in a minute. But more importantly than that, they have grown tremendously over the last few months, both spiritually and emotionally. Yes, it is. <laughs> you got it all? So they have learned some of life's hardest lessons as Bible quizzing is apt to teach this year. Lessons like discipline and hard work, grace and defeat, and acceptance that sometimes life just isn't fair. Hard lessons for an adult, um, much less a kid under 12. Um, and sometimes uh, quizzing can feel like an individual sport, right? You know, um, all the time and effort that you put in can feel like, you know, it's all on you. But it's far from that. Quizzing, unified, and as a team, is so important, and it's something that we've stressed all year. Each quizzer recognizing their specific strengths and weaknesses and how they can uniquely contribute to the team, and not quizzing selfishly. And both Noah and Joseph exemplified that all throughout the year, and especially at nationals. Being recognized by the national quiz master as having some of the cleanest and best quizzing, but also some of the best teamwork he has seen all year. As a result of that, they had the highest percentage correct of any team at nationals, and they've won four bronze medals, signifying that they each had equally contributed to the win with 60 points or more. So of all of the trophies, those to me are the most important. It shows that they know how to give and take. They know what their strengths are and their weaknesses, and they have been completely unselfish with each other all year. So for that, I am very proud. Joseph had five silver medals, which means that he scored more than 70 points per game. And Noah had three silver and two gold, meaning that he scored 70 plus points per game and 100 per game. Awesome individual awards as well. As a team, Noah and Joseph placed seventh out of 77 of the best teams in the country, losing only to the second and fifth place teams. I think that deserves a round of applause. And Noah Watley was runner-up for Quizzer of the Year out of hundreds of quizzers. Well done. <laughs> so now for some much-needed R&R, right? <laughs> I want to thank you again uh, to the Murphys and to the church for your support of Bible quizzing. We were very blessed to be able to attend nationals and all of our quiz tournaments throughout the year due to your generosity and our initial fundraising efforts. And this is a program that's well worth our time and our money. And I'm grateful to be a part of a church that recognizes that. So thank you all so much. Well, thank you, Sister Courtney. Congratulations, quizzers. Aren't you proud of Grace Church? Amen. We want to take this opportunity to just welcome everybody here to Grace Church Campus today. We are so glad that you've chosen to be a part of our service today. 
those joining us on Facebook Live and live stream, we are glad that you are a part of the service today. Why don't we just clap our hands for all of our guests, Grace Church, everyone that's here today as a guest. We're glad they're here. A couple of things I want to remind you of. Uh, first of all, you probably saw out in the parking lot when you drove up the Blood Mobile. And so you have an opportunity today to give blood, to be a part of that important, important cause. I know some have already made their way out there. I've, I've seen some, talked to some, seen some on the sign-up list. It's not too late. You can still be a part of that. So make that a part of your day and help save somebody's life. And then, of course, Tuesday prayer this Tuesday at 10 o'clock here in the sanctuary. As always, if you can, if you can make it, if your schedule allows, please be a part of that. And then this coming Wednesday night, we're very excited to have the missionary from Hungary or the missionary to Hungary with us, Brother Robert Sesh. And uh, we're glad that he is coming. Please make a note of that and be a part of the service Wednesday night. And let's be a blessing to our missionaries. And gentlemen, if you'll remember men's prayer this coming, sun, uh, this coming Saturday, rather, July 31st at 9 o'clock in the Alexander, Alexander Center. And then finally, Brother Greg Albritton is scheduled to minister in the service next Sunday. So you want to make a note of that, and let's come out and be blessed by the ministry of Brother Greg Albritton. Amen. Amen. I ask you to stand with me this morning. We have a couple of prayer requests that we want to bring before the Lord today. Uh, as we've mentioned over the last two services, we still have a host of folks that are sick battling sickness. We want to lift them up in prayer, our Grace Church family. And then Sister Sherry Gregoire's grandson, she's turned in a prayer request for him, very urgent. His name is Caden. She's counting on Grace Church to pray. He is 16 years old and was in a very, very serious car accident over the weekend. And so they are asking the church to pray for Caden today. We want to lift him up before the Lord. He is in surgery at this hour, as I understand. And then, church family, we want to pray today for the Taylor family. We want to lift them up. And uh, Sandra Taylor passed away this week. Sandra, of course, is the mother to Darren and Ryan and Kelly. Richard, we're glad to see you here today. We want to lift this family up in prayer. These are, these are the times that where, where there's some of the most difficult moments that we walk through in our human life. It's also the moments where God can step in and show himself to be so real, to be so comforting, and to really let the power of the Holy Ghost walk through a very, very difficult valley. And so I want us to pray for the Taylor family to that end today. We're so glad they're here today. We want to lift them up and wrap our arms of love around them. Can we do that today, Grace Church? Lord, we thank you for your presence that is here. We've entered in with thanksgiving. We've entered in with praise. And your presence has been engaged. Lord, there are needs here that we've mentioned that sometimes can seem too much to bear. They can, they can seem too heavy, Lord, but they're not too heavy for you. Lord, and if our faith ever counted for anything, Lord, if it ever meant anything, Lord, it is in these moments and these times that, that activated faith in the living God proves, Lord, what you can do in lives when we're broken, when we're hurting, when we're sick, Lord, when we're in desperate need of a touch, that's where you step in and you do things that seem uh, impossible, Lord, that can only be the hand of God, that can only be miraculous. 
And so we activate our prayer to that end today. We engage our faith with your presence. Lord, I pray specifically today for Caden, God, in that room right now where surgery is happening, that you would heal his body, that you would guide the hands of the physicians. I pray for the Taylor family today, Lord, that you would place your arms around them, guide them, lead them, let let them feel the true comforting power of your presence today. And Lord, we will give you the praise in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Would you clap your hands to the Lord Grace Church? The praise team's going to lead us in praise as you remain standing today.
Let's praise him today all over the house. Would you lift your voice to the Lord in praise? Let's exalt him. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. The presence of the Lord is here today. Can we worship him again? Let's praise the Lord one more time. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Great to see all of you here today. So thankful you've come to worship the Lord on a beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. And uh, we're so thankful to have all of you here. Our guests here today, welcome. We're so glad that you're here today as well. And we trust that the service is a blessing to you today. I want to say to our young folks up here, you've inspired me this morning. Thank you for your worship. Thank you for your praise and worship today. It's been amazing. And God bless you guys and don't stop. Just don't stop. Just keep the praise, worship going. And uh, God blesses as a result of that. Um, I'll have you remain standing for a moment. But uh, I do want to say it's so amazing today to see all of the, the tailors here today, save one only because they go to another church a long ways away. But I'm uh, so glad to see you guys. And uh, thank you for being here. Such a difficult time. And uh, y'all have been in the forefront of our minds and our hearts, and I promise you that. And I do say this, standing on the Word of God, God is going to take you folks by the hand. He has taken you by the hand, and He's going to lead you through this. Yes, He will. Uh, the comfort of the Holy Ghost is real, and it's ever-present. And I deeply, deeply appreciate all of you folks being here today. Thank the Lord. How about Noah and Joseph? Did they do great this year in Bible quizzing? Amen. Uh, we're very proud, very, very proud, very, very thankful for them. And I, I sat and as we listened to them quiz against some great, great teams, great, great quizzers. When you get to nationals, uh, you're not going to play a team that's not been well-trained and, and well-qualified. If, if they weren't not well-trained and not well-qualified, they wouldn't be there. And uh, so they were all great teams there this year, and I am so proud of our team. But as I sat and listened to them, I would just sometimes shake my head. Noah asked me one time, said, Papa, why do you shake your head like that? I said, because I'm amazed. It's not that y'all are doing anything wrong. It's because you're doing it right. And um, when uh, Courtney just announced that um, they answered correctly, uh, had the highest percentage on that, I, I started racking my brain and I only think of just three or four times where they made an error on an answer. Uh, it is amazing, amazing, amazing to watch that. And it's not just that they win the quiz. It's all the preparation. And even more than that, it's what they have hidden and their heart and mind that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. Amen. Everybody said amen. I want to challenge our parents today with, y'all sit down for a minute. <clears throat> I want to challenge our parents today with, with our younger children. Uh, some of you have uh, kids that are um, very well uh, qualified and, and have all the potential in the world to, do, to go through the Bible quizzing process. Does it take a lot of work? Yes, it does. Does it take a lot of time? Yes, it does. But I want to ask you this question. I want all of your parents to listen. Those of you watching on live stream today, listen. 
you rather go through all of the work and discipline of Bible quizzing every day? You get off about two months a year. That's what it boils down to, I think. Maybe two, two and a half months of the year. You don't have to worry about anything. Now that we've just finished the season, I think it'll crank back up in, in the first of September. But would you rather go through that and give your kids a, a 90% plus success rate and staying in the church? Or would you rather wait till they're 18, 19, 20 years old and they don't come to church anymore when they have, according to statistics in, in the Pentecostal circles of a 50-50 shot that don't go through Bible quizzing? Would you rather pay the price now to teach them the Bible? Or would you rather wait till they're in their late teens, early 20s and spend hours and hours and hours praying for them to come back? Is that a guilt trip? Maybe, but it's the truth. And I'll be very honest. You can ask me after church. I can read some of your minds now. You can, you're thinking it. Well, Pastor, how much time did you spend with knowing Joseph during quizzing? Zero. I didn't spend hardly any time with them at all, quoting them, none of that. Casey and Chris and Sister Merv were amazing, and I will always be indebted to them. But I spend a lot of time doing a lot of other things in reference to this church and what have you. I'm going to ask you moms and dads to think about it, pray about it. You say you don't have time. You don't have time not to. When you realize the hope and the promise it puts in your kids, it puts the Bible into them. Do you understand that? It's not a church program. It's not church vision. It's not human ideology and all of that. You're putting the most powerful source written word into their hearts and minds. And to say I don't have time is... It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And they moan and groan and gripe and complain. I think Bible quizzing is worse than piano lessons. They just don't want to do it. And I've seen our two. Um, as a matter of fact, Casey just kind of washed her hands of one of them for about the past month or so of, of, of this Bible season or Bible quizzing season and told Sister Murph, he's yours. God bless you. And so she came up with some ideas and some thoughts and things and, and just breezed right through it. But it was worth it. It was so worth it. So I'm going to ask you moms and dads to really pray about it, to think about it. We have enough in our church to have a couple of good Bible quizzing teams. I encourage you to start them as beginners. Don't wait till they're seniors and then expect to jump into it. It's really, really difficult to jump in as a senior, even though some has. And while I'm saying all of that, I, I just can't applaud Nathan and Courtney Henson enough. They come up here, she comes up here and really brags on knowing Joseph, and I agree, rightfully so. Uh, they understand the Bible quizzing culture. They understand how it works. Their minds have been developed to, to know how to do that, how to interpret questions and that kind of thing. But that didn't just happen. It happened under the, the, the guidance and leadership of two very qualified coaches. And uh, 
looking back now in retrospect after having gone through this, if I was a parent with, with young children, Bible quizzing age, I would want Sister Murph to take them down that path. But I would also would hope that I could find a Nathan and Courtney Henson to coach them. They're that quality. They're that qualified. They've both been through quizzing. They understand how it works. But more than that, they teach life lessons. They teach attitude. They teach spirit. They teach Christianity. I know they have a baby on their way. But if I was a parent with younger children that had Bible quizzing capability, I would see them after church and say, hey, look, we'll help with you, baby. But my kids need to go through some quizzing. I would bribe them. I'll buy you a new Cadillac. Whatever it takes. I'll say some of that in jest, but my heart is so into this. These are fine, fine, quality people. And um, I will tell you, if you approach them about coaching your kids, they're going to have some very strict parameters, and I'm going to say this for them. They're not looking for people that's going to do this for a month and quit. They're not looking for moms and dads that's going to expect them to do all the work. They don't. They just coach. They don't do all the quoting. All they do is coach. You teach them, mom and dad, all the material, and they'll coach them on how quizzing works and what have you. But they're not looking for people that's going to stay in for a month or two and then quit. If you're going to do that, don't even ask me. But if you're willing to commit to it as a mom and dad, and it's more moms and dads than it is the kids, and you'll have to be prepared for those mornings and afternoons when the kids fall out on the floor and scream and kick and cry and I don't want to quote and all that kind of stuff. You just be creative. You can do incentives or you can do some pretty strict discipline. The choice is yours along that line. But if you can, if you can, you won't regret it. You won't regret it. Especially when you see them successfully living for God in their late teens, early 20s, and then they marry and they stay in church and they marry a person that's in the church and their kids are born and continue to come to church and the cycle continues. Please give it some thought. You give your kids devices of all kinds to keep them occupied. What is that going to do for them when they are going to college compared to what is the Bible going to do for them when they're going to college? You get the point. I hope you do. Um, we have an outstanding window of opportunity. And I hope all of our parents, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Um, if we don't have enough to form teams and what have you, Maybe we could partner up with the, one of the area churches or something like that. I talked to Tim Matthews, who they help oversee quizzing for the state of Louisiana or for the state of Mississippi. He said they had a team at Nationals last year where one person on that team was almost three hours away from the home church that had the, the main team. And they never practiced one time together until they got to Nationals. And I thought that was interesting. So it can be done. It just takes a little bit of discipline, a little bit of work and it can be done. <clears throat> Before I have you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord this morning, um, it was Monday or Tuesday of this past week in Branson. I woke up at about 5 o'clock in the morning, which is, it's not uncommon, but it's uncommon when my heart and mind starts racing with something that I believe God has inspired me. Several times I'd steal away in the room. I battled with it all week. 
It's not until the end of the week that I came to a resolution and a conclusion with it. And I don't know if you'll call this a sermon or not. I'm just going to call it a presentation. But I know that God spoke to me. I've recognized that through the years, and I know that God spoke to me. And this Sunday could not be a better time. God knew exactly what he was doing. Those of you watching on live stream, if you'll give the word of God your attention, those of you that are here, if you'll stand in honor to the word of God. I don't know how much preaching I'll do today. Uh, I may just talk to you a little bit. We'll see how this goes. John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, everybody say, but Thomas. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was called that because he was a twin. I say that because we've had a host of twins at Grace Church. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. What a statement. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus. Then came Jesus. The doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thine hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, there's a, a, a statement, there's a part of this statement, there's a phrase that's missing. And I want to point it out huge today. Jesus did not say, because thou hast seen me and touched me. He didn't say that. Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. Notice, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. I want to speak to you for a little while this morning. When you do not see, when you do not see and believe anyway. Most of us fall into that bracket this morning. Everybody say thank God for the word. Thank you for your patience and standing. You may be seated. 
Thomas was apparently the one disciple that struggled with the concept or principle of faith or believing. Listen very carefully. It is interesting to me that Jesus would know that about Thomas and choose him as a disciple anyway. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you will not find that Thomas was treated any different than any of the other disciples. That's very interesting to me that God would call a man that struggled with faith, the principle, the concept of faith and believing to be a disciple. And then when you read the statement that Thomas made, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. I want to say here in passing today, there's nothing more than I would love to have the ability to do is to say, Jesus, come on out and let him walk out of that door over there or that door over there and just stand here and let everybody that wants to come up here and let Jesus hold out his hand and you rub your finger around the nail print in the palm of his hand. Nothing more that I'd rather be able to do today than that. But I'm pretty confident today that that's not going to happen. I believe Thomas was making his statement of doubt and unbelief, particularly in reference to the resurrection of Jesus. But specifically, he still struggled with the idea that Jesus would or even could resurrect himself from the dead even after all the miracles, signs, and wonders that Jesus performed right in front of him. And there were many, at least three people raised from the dead that we know of when Thomas was present. So I want to ask you a question today. Is it possible that a person cannot believe all that Jesus says or does? Or is it possible that a person can believe some things that Jesus says and does. Again, it's very interesting, and there are several things that I will repeat today, not to be repetitive, but my purpose is to have you understand where I'm coming from in this presentation. It is very interesting to me that Jesus chose someone to follow him as one Of the twelve disciples, one of the twelve, do you understand? There's a foundation in heaven that has Thomas' name on it. That Jesus would choose Thomas knowing that he would apparently would struggle with virtually... A lot of things that Jesus said, a lot of things that Jesus did, but especially when it came to the resurrection. I believe Jesus chose Thomas to serve as an everlasting example. That Jesus can call people to follow him knowing 
that they will struggle with believing. Let's take a closer look at Thomas. I'm going to let that, I'm going to let you percolate in that for a little bit. Let's take a closer look at Thomas. Little is recorded of Thomas, who was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Thomas was probably born in Galilee, as I mentioned a moment ago, that he was a twin. His brother or sister is not known. There's no indication that he was a fisherman, that being the common trade of the area. He was a Jew, but there is no account of how he became a disciple of Christ. There's no account of how Jesus had that moment with him as he did others and said, Thomas, come follow me. We don't have that record. But Thomas, like the other 11, accepts the demanding responsibility of discipleship, which we would all think one of those responsibilities was believing in the one who was following around Israel for three and a half years. Whatever you will define as the responsibility of discipleship, I'm not sure Thomas fulfilled or checked all the boxes. But he was nonetheless a disciple. I believe, again, Jesus ordained it this way because there's a lot of people that could come to Christ doubting a lot of things, having a lot of room in their life for faith to develop and belief to engage and so on. And I believe Jesus knew if I call Thomas, I know what it will take to persuade him and to earn his faith, to earn his belief and trust. I know what it will take. So I'm going to ask him to follow me even though he's not going to believe in me until the last possible minute I'm here on this planet. Thomas accepted the demanding responsibility of discipleship as folks today have done here at Grace Church. That in itself shows their love and loyalty to Jesus. So many others abandoned Jesus after hearing the hard sayings that he would ask of the twelve. Example of that is in John 6, 67 when he asked the disciples after the crowd left, he asked his own twelve, will you also go away? We first meet Thomas in Scripture when Jesus announced his intention of visiting the recently deceased Lazarus in Judea that was a few miles from Jerusalem and dangerously close for someone as unpopular as Jesus was at this time. So Thomas said to the other eleven, let us also go that we may die with him, he said. He was a loyal follower and perhaps even though he had Parts of him, parts of his makeup, parts of his DNA, parts of his mind and heart that didn't totally believe everything that was going on. There was still a love and devotion there that says, I'll die for this man if it comes down to it. When the worried disciples wanted to keep Jesus from going to Judea to see the deceased Lazarus and his family, they were worried about Jesus that he would be stoned or killed. Thomas, in a moment of bravery, bravery, rallied the others to stay by their master, come what may. 
But we know that when the crucifixion time came, Thomas will flee and fear when his master suffers and dies as a result of crucifixion. And like his fellow disciple Peter, he will find that Jesus' love never fails even when his own courage failed miserably. So with that little background about the disciple Thomas called Didymus, I'd like to share with you uh, an exchange between him and Jesus when Jesus was actually preparing for crucifixion in John 14. You know the story. Jesus said, spending some moments with his disciples before crucifixion began. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way you know. But Thomas said unto him, Thomas, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? It would be appropriate for Thomas to ask this question. It's not a bad question. It's not a stupid question. It's legitimate. Because a lot of what Jesus said was veiled in mystery and and, uh, just took a lot of hardcore faith to believe it. I understand that. Notice what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But if you had known me, Thomas, if you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Jesus meaning that I am the Father. God is on the inside of me. But he said, if you had known me. So not only was Thomas missing some revelation Some illumination, if you will. Along with his belief and faith, it becomes evident in this exchange between him and Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I believe in a very kind and patient voice, if you had known me, if you could have believed, if you could have understood, if you could have got the revelation that Peter did, if you could have been, if you could have just understood better. So I believe in this exchange, figuratively speaking, that Jesus was wrapping his arms around the doubter, the unbeliever, the one lacking understanding, and assured him that one day soon you will know who I am. So we jump from John 14 to when Thomas is mentioned again in John chapter 20, which was my text today. I believe today that this is one of the most incredible paradoxes in Scripture. And John is the only one that records this particular meeting. Now understand the context of what I'm saying here this morning. The the, the resurrection is no doubt Jesus' greatest moment. It is mankind's greatest moment. And Jesus allows one of his disciples, one of the 12 disciples, to doubt it, 
It's interesting to me. This came to me this past week, the first part of the week. It just, it just, it, 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 it. Why would you do this, Jesus, if there's anything you want to prove to the world? Is your resurrection. And you're going to allow this one skeptic. You're going to allow this one person to question it. To doubt it. To go further than that. To, to staunchly say, I refuse to believe it. I'm not going to believe it. I don't care if 500 people tell me they've seen Jesus. You understand in Jewish law, the law of Moses and so on, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Thomas understood that. Here you have at least ten disciples telling him, we've seen Jesus. And he looks back at them with a more fervent attitude and a posture of determination saying, I don't care who you've said you've seen. I'm not going to believe it. Till I see the scars and touch the scars. I'm not going to believe it. Thomas demands I must see him and I must touch him. Now, again, I don't feel like I'm preaching here today. I'm just, I'm talking to you. Just, we are not told why Thomas wasn't present at Jesus' first appearance to his disciples. And again, we do know that when the others tell him they have seen Christ, he is skeptical and announces that he requires graphic, physical proof if he is to believe. This is where it would be just really amazing to say, okay, Jesus, come on out right now and let everybody see. I want you to understand this. The crucifixion of Jesus for nobody, even the Romans, was not a picnic. They were not celebrating. They were very nervous, very fidgety. If you remember, Pilate had soldiers camped out in front of the grave. You remember that in the scripture? I mean, we're not leaving this thing unattended. This, this, this man said he'll resurrect himself in three days. We're going to make sure it doesn't happen. Or we're not going to make sure his disciples come steal his body and then say he was resurrected. We, we're going to take care of this. Everybody was nervous. People are nervous when Jesus isn't present. Another sermon for another time. But Jesus revealed himself, showed up to the ten disciples. Judas, of course, was not there. So for the next eight days, a week and a day, Thomas has to wait to see Christ. I cannot imagine what those eight days was like. What went through his mind. He kept hearing all these stories unless he had quarantined himself somewhere. He kept hearing all these stories. Perhaps during those long days, he is not encouraged by the hope and certainty of the others who've already seen him. I'm not going to believe it, he said. So in John chapter 20, verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And I read to you what he said. I repeat that several times. In verse 26, And after eight days again his disciples were within, and this time Thomas was there. Now you've got to pay attention. Then came Jesus. Everybody say, then came Jesus. Thank you for your response. It tells me you're listening. 
Then came Jesus. The doors were shut. If there was windows, they were shut. We know that the disciples had locked themselves in this room out of fear of the Romans coming to get them and crucifying them and so on. And Jesus appears, just stood in the midst. The Bible is very clear. The doors were being shut and he stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. Now watch this. Everybody's listening. Jesus obviously, according to the scripture, had just walked through the door, not the doorway, through the door itself, or walked through the wall or just appeared. Either way, he said, Peace be unto you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thine hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless. He's portraying an attitude and a mindset where faith does not exist. I don't, not only do I believe, not believe Jesus resurrected, I don't even believe the, the, the other disciples that he did. I ain't believing nothing. Jesus said, Rich, either thy hand and thrust it in my side, be not faithless, but believe in And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus had just walked through a closed locked door or had just walked through a wall or just appeared, let me ask you a question. How could Thomas touch him? How can you touch something that just walked through the door or the wall or just appeared. It, 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 Jesus' body, what it was a glorified body, we know that. It just it appeared. It, it, it had to go through some long degree of scientific explanation of how it defied matter. Y'all not hearing me right now. Are you listening? Everybody say I'm listening. I can't illustrate this point. I don't have anybody here today in a glorified body, but I want to reach out and touch Jesus. I want to feel the nail print in his hand. Y'all with me? Stand up, Owen. I want to touch the nail print probably up here in his wrist somewhere. I want to touch that. But I can't because when I, where I think my finger is going to touch his skin, it's just going to go right through it. Do y'all understand now? Jesus just walked through a wall. Thank you. So Jesus is not touchable, but he's seeable. I can see him, but to touch him is like touching a ghost. It's like touching a spirit. It's like, I don't know how else to say it. It's like trying to touch fog. It's like trying to touch a cloud. You can see it, but you can't touch it. The Bible doesn't say that Thomas touched him. It does not say that. So would it have done any good to try to touch Jesus? I don't know what happened in that exchange. I have my personal feelings that I will share since you've asked. I believe Jesus said... Touch my hand, Thomas, because Jesus knew what would happen. What else would cause Thomas to have such a response? 
my Lord and my God. I thought I was going to touch the physical human body of a man and it went through his arm like I'm going through a cloud. I think if that had happened to me or to you, you would have probably said the same thing. I can see this man, but when I try to touch him, my hand goes right through his body as though it were a cloud standing there. Now, this manifestation made to anxious skepticism, this manifestation of Jesus, you listen to pastor here today, I know where I'm going. This, this manifestation. He told Mary in the garden not to touch him. Remember that? But Mary didn't need to. Thomas did. And Jesus was not sending out a mixed signal. Again, I believe Jesus asked Thomas to touch him because Jesus knew he couldn't. didn't matter now watch this verse 29 Jesus said unto him Thomas because thou hast seen me I made this remark when I began today now you understand it better Jesus did not say because thou hast seen me and touched me he didn't say that he said because thou hast seen me thou hast believed blessed are they that have not even seen. There's going to be a lot of people follow you, Thomas, for a couple of thousand years that will never see me like you did, but they'll believe anyway. That's probably most of us sitting in this room. Would you agree? I need everybody to say amen if you understand what I'm preaching. All right, so here we go. So Jesus allowed himself now I do not believe that God changes. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. On any given occasion, as far as I'm concerned, prior to his crucifixion, if he wanted to manifest himself to somebody that way, he could have. As a matter of fact, he did. When they tried to throw him off of a mountain, and the Bible said Jesus just passed right through them. So this manifestation was made to very anxious and very nervous skepticism on the part of Thomas. With a blessing, a blessing put on those who have not seen him that way. I haven't seen him that way, but I still believe in him. As a matter of fact, I've not seen any bodily manifestation of Jesus in my entire life. And I've spent 35 plus years preaching about him. So the revelation of Jesus was of supreme importance. And it is the climax of the entire gospel of John. I admit that it was peculiar to John's narrative. 
Yet it throws light upon the very construction of the gospel. You remember John started off his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. John really wasn't on board with this Jesus thing either. But he did go on to say that the Word was made flesh, something touchable and seeable. And it's just amazing to me that he ends with a bodily, a visibly body of Christ, but one you couldn't touch. Y'all can look at me, however, I'm still in the Bible. It reveals to me the characteristics of honest doubt, not antagonistic doubt, but honest doubt, and indicates the abundance of the evidence which was offered to specific classes and conditions of the mind to help them believe that Jesus was risen. Thomas did, Jesus did this for Thomas. Yes, he did. But I also believe he did it and allowed it to be recorded. You remember, John said that there's a lot of things that happened that's not recorded. But he allowed this one to be recorded, not just for Thomas. Thomas didn't need it to be recorded. He's the one that witnessed the whole thing. He's the one that experienced the whole thing. But he allowed it to be recorded for the thousands of people that would follow after Thomas. Those anxious, skeptical, doubting followers of Jesus that yearns to just see more. I need evidence. And no pun intended, I need to have something to put my finger on. Is, our, is a touchable nail print that you see, is that more evidence of a resurrected Christ or a nail print that you see that's not touchable? The untouchable nail print to me gives a divine realm to this. It takes it to a whole nother level. Who could do such of a thing but God? You are talking about this man that turned water to wine, right? Took nature and turned it on its head. So it is possible that Jesus could do this. So it reveals the characteristics, Thomas is, of honest doubt. And it indicates the abundance of the evidence which is offered. Jesus responds back to that honest doubt. The confession drawn from the heart of Thomas is not only valuable in itself, but it reflects a new luster on this particular manifestation. Thomas was seeing a Jesus that he had never seen before. Out of three and a half years of every kind of miracle you can imagine, Jesus still exceeded those manifestations of himself. And this one thing where he allowed Thomas to see the nail scar but not touch it. Brother Tom, are you on board with me this morning? Okay. He's a thinker. I'd like to have his response. Thomas was seeing the Jesus he had never seen before. Jesus doesn't change, you understand that. But Jesus can manifest himself in any number of ways. Moreover, this is a cumulative or, or growing in its, in its argumentative or aggressive force. The most skeptical 
of the 12 disciples is now the most enthusiastic. Notice what Thomas called Didymus manifested, and I'm concluding. Thomas was blending an intense love for Jesus along with an intense fear which had torment to it. Thomas manifested a great ambition and yet exposure to moods of despondency, a desire to treat the whole manifestation of Christ as complete, to believe that the words of the Lord were all sublimely true, coupled with a ghastly doubt that it was all delusion. Thomas was manifesting, I've heard this preached all my life, but never like this. We always talk about how Jesus manifested himself to Thomas, but nobody, to my knowledge, has preached how Thomas was manifesting himself to Jesus to get this kind of a manifestation in response. Thomas manifested a faculty of constructive faith along with incredible speculation of transcendental intuition side by side, both together, with an intense desire for sensible manifestation. You might say, if I knew somebody like this, I'd make me scream. Can you imagine how they're screaming on the inside? I want to believe this. I've heard it from everybody that I love and trust. I've heard it for years. I've heard my parents talk about it. I've heard my family talk about it. My church talk about it. I want to believe it like they do. But I just can't accept their description of Jesus' manifestation to them. I need my own. Thomas' manifestation was a greater belief in the master plan than in his disciples. He didn't believe the disciples. But no unwillingness to accept that which was sufficiently established. Remember, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. We can never know why he was absent. I believe he was given to moody fear and shrank into solitude. And doubtless in many ways and words, as well as those recorded, had implied the wreck of his hopes. Separated from the fellowship of kindred spirits, he augmented his gloom. He was fast tending to unbelief. The state of his mind throughout the Passover week may have been the one reason why the disciples delayed their return to Galilee. They may have come frequently to him with their sublime announcement, not once nor twice only. But Thomas called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. The cause of his absence is not mentioned. Possibly might be affliction or some other unavoidable uh, hindrance. Through this, however, he missed the satisfaction and happiness of seeing his master risen and of sharing with the disciples in their joy upon that occasion. The other disciples therefore said to him the next time they saw him, and that, that doubtless it came with great joy, we have seen Jesus relating to him most likely all that had passed at the time and particularly the satisfaction Christ had given them by showing them his hands inside. But he said, except I shall see his hands in the print of his nails. As if he said, this is a matter of too great importance for me to believe on any report, even on yours. More is necessary to convince me than merely a transient sight of mine own eyes. For unless... I shall have the fullest evidence of my own feeling as well as sight of him. I will not by any means or any testimony whatsoever believe 
that he is risen. So, according to verses 30 and 31, this ended the transactions of the day on which our Lord arose from the dead. The Gospel of John ends with a man seeing Jesus like no other man had. And now it's kind of hard to understand where Thomas is coming from because he has seen Jesus on a level that no one else has seen him. So here's my conclusion today. I hope you have understood and I hope I have sufficiently explained what God spoke to me earlier in the week. Thomas has seen a manifestation of Christ that no one else has ever seen. To my knowledge, no one ever was afforded this manifestation of Jesus like Thomas was. You can come touch my hand, but you're not going to feel a thing. I want to say that again and I want it to resonate to somebody I'm going to show you a physical bodily form of me but the proof and evidence that I'm standing before you Thomas is not going to be based on anything you touch or feel it's going to be based on everything that you see and hear so this amazing manifestation of Jesus, Brother James, was no more eloquent in the very end of all of this than what you and I know today. We have seen him. Yes, we have. We've seen manifestations of him. Yes, we have. But has anybody in the building ever touched the human physical body of Jesus? No, you haven't. And neither did Thomas. I still say, if you'll stand with me this morning, I still say, that a seeable, apparently touchable nail print that in reality you cannot touch is more inspirational and revelational than one you can. I feel like there's about five people on board with this here this morning. If you didn't get it, go listen to it again. This is powerful to me. And here's the summation of it all. Brother Richard, the summation of it all. Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have seen me in a way that no one else has. And you believe for those who have not seen. Brother Richard, I'll be, I would be very humbly surprised. I'd be incredibly thankful if you called me in the next few days and said, Pastor, I've just seen Jesus. He showed up in my living room. I saw a literal, physical appearance of Jesus. He walked through the wall. He offered that I touch him, but I hand just went right through him like I was 
fanning a cloud. I would be amazed. But Jesus is going to give a whole lot more credit to your faith when you walk through all of this valley of shadow of death and you not see him move through. We're blessed for those who have not seen him. I understand a little bit better maybe in context where the Bible said that Abraham's faithfulness was counted unto him as righteousness because he never saw him either. Neither did Noah, neither did David or Daniel. None of these people saw this Jesus that Thomas got to see. I'm not sure Peter saw him like that even though he was there. I don't believe the other ten got the point like Thomas. They weren't offered to extend a hand and let it pass through a cloud with a nail print on it. So over this church today, over every born-again believer, over every born-again believer that has never seen, there is a blessing that's been pronounced on you will reveal but my hope and desire here today is that as a blessing of not receiving of not seeing the blessing of not seeing I hope we can all walk out of here today fascinated by the revelation we do have that will cause us to say my Lord and my God so as they begin to sing softly if you would all come forward just for a few moments I've gone far longer than I've been to believe it's important, especially in the hour that we're living right now, in this season we're living in right now, that people know who Jesus is. And not that just you know what you believe. While they sing softly, would you come time to come down for a moment of worship, a moment of celebration that I know Him, and I'm blessed. Through the conduit of faith, I'm blessed. Through the conduit of believing, I'm blessed. Through not seeing, I'm blessed. The blessing of blinded eyes. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I've not seen, but I still believe. the comfort that we have, the encouragement, the inspiration. That there is a God that's still alive and well even though we don't see Him. We see manifestation of Him. But you can't always put your finger on God. It just takes faith to believe He's there. It takes faith to believe that He exists. Would you lift your heart to heaven today? Would you lift your heart to heaven? As they sing this song of encouragement and worship, would you give yourself to the Lord today? Would you say, God, I believe and I'm holding on to the promise that one day I will see you. Oh, God, help us today. For it was God that said one day we will see him as he is. The same God said we will see him one day as he has. 